This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with world-renowned international law and national security expert, David Crane. He helped create and was the founding director of the Office of Intelligence Review in the Department of Defense. He also was the lead prosecutor in war crimes trials for the United Nations against Sierra Leone leadership in the 1.2 million massacre of its citizens in their civil war. David currently is leading the Syria Accountability Project, building war crime cases and trial packages against all Syrian government and faction leaders. His group has verified that over 8,000 individual war crimes have been committed. I've always been around some key and major events uh, throughout my career, some of them big, some of them small, but always uh, definitive in, 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 in all of that. But throughout all of this, you also uh, begin to develop, uh, and I'm one of the originators uh, of, uh, of a discipline called the National, uh, National Security Law. Uh, which is advising policymakers, diplomats, government officials on the legal aspects of deploying, of using force, uh, using the power of the United States overseas uh, or within the United States uh, in whatever way that shapes itself. And throughout, during this process, I was in organizations uh, that I was able to advise related to national security and develop an expertise in both national security law and a, and a minor, very specialized subset of that called intelligence law, where you're actually advising national security agencies like the Defense Intelligence Agency, special access programs, uh, the CIA, what have you, on applying constitutional principles in U.S. domestic law to intelligence operations overseas. Uh, a lot of your listeners would probably not understand uh, that uh, we just don't run amok in, in the national security business, even though the appearances that we do. All of our actions that are uh, done overseas for the security of the United States have to comport with constitutional principles, uh, domestic law and policy of that particular agency or the Department of Defense. So that was an area that I began to develop because there was no real discipline in this area. And through that process, uh, I was appointed uh, a senior executive uh, into the senior executive service of the United States, which is the senior individuals who actually run the government on a day-to-day -day basis. Political appointees come and go, but uh, right now, literally as we speak, because we don't have any political appointees in this new administration, the senior executives are actually running the departments or the agencies, what have you. And so I was asked uh, by the Department of Defense to create uh, the first Office of Intelligence Review, uh, which would oversee all of the intelligence agencies within the Department of Defense, which is about 80% of the U.S. intelligence community. 
Uh, and through all of this process, I had gone to various schools and developed a, a, not just a legal expertise, but also an operational uh, uh, capacity. And so I was both an operator as well as a, as a lawyer. Uh, but this culminated in my federal career and being the uh, first director, uh, founding director of the Office of Intelligence Review at the U- U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, and then built that organization into a robust, appropriate uh, uh, oversight uh, office for for the Department of Defense. And then uh, uh, from there, I transitioned. I retired after I'd been offered the uh, position as the chief prosecutor for the International Tribunal. But before we get to your retirement, though, let me ask: uh, during your service, you you're a man of the law. And you you study the law, you interpret the law, you advise people about the law and the Constitution and what's certain and what's uncertain. Uh, As that kind of lawyer, I assume certain definitions held true no matter what and were inviolate of of actions. Mm -hmm. After 9-11, did we have shifting definitions in, in the country, and I'm, I'm not pointing to any one politician or any one person. It just seemed like it was a point of demarcation where we define civil rights a little differently. We define human rights a little differently, uh, all under this umbrella of terrorism. I, am, I, am I right or not? Well, actually, you are right, and uh, there was a sea change. In fact, it shifted just when 9-11 happened, uh, and, and both Judy and I lost friends in the Pentagon that day, we were not in the building, we were off doing other things, it set off a series of unintended and intentional signals which shifted the U.S. thinking on the rule of law related to terrorists, people who support terrorists, uh, and others associated with terrorists, uh, and caused a shifting in the U.S. law and policy that essentially looked away from all of the principles that we had worked on throughout the several decades after the Vietnam War of using the rule of law on the battlefield and our operational techniques in intelligence gathering, what have you. Uh, and you know, statements like, uh, we're taking the gloves off, the rules have changed, the Geneva Conventions are quaint, uh, they'll have flies on their eyeballs, uh, dead or alive. These are all kinds of, uh, of statements that are being publicly made by the president, his attorney general, his secretary of defense. His and direct- words matter. Yes, indeed. And there, these were the signals that they were sending to the world that started us on a path where it not only threatened our international reputation, which is still suffering, but also began to bleed into the civil rights of uh, American citizens. The national security system within the United States is phenomenal. It is the best in the world, bar none, and no one can come close to us. The problem is that power and that ability to intrude into the private lives of anybody, to include American citizens, has to be checked by law, policy, and the Constitution. And that began to bend slightly when we had 9-11 to where then we see a shift of Agencies actually, uh, under the guise of counterterrorism, began to intrude into our own private lives. And we see uh, the gathering of uh, U.S. citizen uh, data 
by the National Security Agency under a, uh, a program where Verizon, AT&T, all of, all of the uh, social networking and telephone companies that we all have, we're providing them uh, access to uh, their uh, data on U.S. persons, which when I was overseeing the U.S. and uh, the DOD intelligence community was illegal. And yet this was still being done uh, outside the, uh, the purview of Congress as well as any other oversight agencies. And this went on for a couple of years. Uh, and so the electronic eavesdropping program was exposed by a guy named Jim Reisner in New York Times in 2007, which took the, popped the cork on the concern. And we've been gradually but surely shifting away from uh, the, uh, the paranoid days if there was a terrorist in every on every block to where we're being a little bit more commonsensical uh, as to our approach to terrorism. I'm not saying that we have a perfect policy related to that, but again, we've we, there's been a swing back towards applying more uh, constitutional principles to our private lives because that's what makes us America. I mean, it's easy to intrude on the lives of your citizens. It's much harder to apply the law and avoid, even though there's a national security threat, uh, of, of intruding on your citizens. So and, it's, and that sliding scale is so antithetical to, to the rule of law. It is. It, it definitely is. And without the rule of law, the, you, you sort of have to guess what the, the policy is at any given time where the ends justify the means is what I'm hearing. Well, indeed. And, and, and any time a, uh, a country is threatened from the outside, they tend to look inward and to, uh, and to start shaping and changing domestic law to protect what is perceived to be an outside threat. Uh, the beauty of our Constitution is, is that it bends and shapes based on the threat. And like I tell my students up at Syracuse University College of Law, is the Constitution is the great gyroscope of our republic. Things move left and right, the threats come at us, uh, the Constitution is blowing in the wind, but the Constitution itself never, never moves from that center point uh, at the end of the day, and history is replete with examples of that. Uh, so even though the republic is, 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 is designed to be uh, inefficient, designed to sh- bend and, and shape itself over time, going left and right and conservative and, uh, and liberal, the basic fundamental constitutional principles of our government never change. And so it allows the republic to be just as viable now as it was in 1791 or uh, 1865 because the Constitution has always been the Constitution. The words have never changed. And that allows the republic to be the republic in a changing world over the past centuries. But yet uh, the fundamental principles of what it means to be a, a citizen of that republic never waver. I'm interested, though, in, in after you've retired, after about 30 years of service, uh, y- you worked for the United Nations. Kofi Annan uh, appointed you, and you were the chief prosecutor of a special court prosecuting cases uh, out of the Sierra Leone Civil War that extended for over 10 years. It seemed like you were appointed to bring rule of law and order and accountability 
to a situation that was chaos. Is that an accurate description? You know, it's interesting because uh, you're kind of alluding to a question uh, that that remains unasked, and is how did you get that job? Because I couldn't answer the question because I was always befuddled. I mean, I had a background in uh, in all of the all of this to include a master's degree from Ohio University in West African Studies, but I was an expert in in uh, the laws of armed conflict, uh, what have you. But I actually asked that question when I was sitting saying farewell to Colin Powell. He was resigning. And I went to his office to say goodbye to him during Christmas of 2004. We had a wonderful sit-down together, and we were just chatting. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how the hell did I get this job? (laughs) And he goes, you know what the reason why is? Because you had a reputation of creating new organizations in the federal government and managing them to success. And I was kind of stunned because I never had looked at my career that way. But as it turns out, he was right. I had created a, uh, a new uh, Office of the Staff Judge Advocate of U.S. Spe- Army Special Forces Command. I reshaped and created a new academic department at the Judge Advocate General School uh, at the Charlottesville University of Virginia. Uh, I had created a new major DOD Office of Intelligence Review that oversaw billions of dollars of, of, of funding and multiple thousands of operatives, what have you. And I created that organization. And so someone, uh, he just said, look, you, I mean, you, you had the prerequisites. You were a good lawyer. You were an expert in international uh, law. Uh, you had a background in uh, intelligence operations. But he says, you're real. The reason why we, we were pushing you is we knew if we, we gave you the mission that you'd get it done. And I said, well, I really never thought of it that way. But that's the ground truth uh, as to uh, why I got the job, is I had this reputation uh, in the federal government of just creating new offices and, 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 and getting the job done. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I've traveled the world and I've seen terrible things, but I'd never seen anything like what I saw in West Africa, bar, bar none. Uh, the horror of, uh, of the destruction of over 1.2 million human beings uh, is, was beyond description, as I told the tribunal when I gave the opening statement to the trial against the leadership of the Civil Defense Force. I told them that there's nothing in the, any language that will, be able to, will describe to you the horror that these people went through. And I told them that you're actually going to have to believe the unbelievable. And that was my theme in my opening statement of, 
of three opening statements that I made against the three major warring parties in that uh, in that horror story. So no, I, I I knew I could get the job done. I had the mandate. In other words, they gave me a mission. They gave me here's how much money you're going to have, and this was just to me this was just simple management 101. Mission, money, go do it. And so I just took all my experience of 30 plus years and doing this and leading organizations, and I just went over there and did it. Now, of course, it's always a challenge operating in a new system called the United Nations. Their outlook on management is slightly different than, uh, than American management systems. But we, we prevailed through just uh, uh, good diplomacy and, and being a good leader. And again, uh, uh, I, I remember as I was in the middle of beginning all of this, I, I had this prayer called, and I would just say, Lord, keep me focused, keep me safe, keep me strong. Because every day was a mind-blowing day. Everything I saw, particularly those first, that first year there, and I was there for three years, uh, was heart-stopping, uh, psychologically impacting uh, facts that... Uh, that no human being should be faced with. And so, you know, again, I began to realize that this was affecting my office as I was bringing them in under my strategic plan and my management plan. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, I hired a staff psychologist so that my team could go in and talk to her about what they were seeing every day. I would go around every day and talk to my people just to assess how they were doing uh, and thank them for all that they were doing for Sierra Leone. And I would walk into an office where there would be a a seconded Royal Canadian Mounted Police homicide investigator just weeping at his desk from what he had just come back from uh, seeing up country. Uh, the psychological toll was, was horrific. And so you have to uh, take all of this, and, and, I, and I, have a little, I have a little mini course, what I call management in the extremes, where you take uh, people, focus them, and actually create something good out of extreme situations. Uh, and a lot of those lessons I had learned from from Sierra Leone. But the lessons you learned there, now as a law professor at uh, Syracuse University College of Law, you're applying that to Syria. You've got two programs in Syria. One's called I Am Syria. The other one, the Syrian Accountability Project. I'll let you define those. But it seems like what you did at Sierra Leone was not only manage and, and create, like uh, Colin Powell had said that you were really good at, but you also have the ability to build cases yes. and, and build evidence and, and build a saleable case, which is a different skill set than, than management. It is. Uh, and and. Are you applying both of those lessons from Sierra Leone to your current projects with Syria? Uh, well, thank you for asking about Syria because, again, Syria now is the world's in-your-face atrocity, though we have other atrocities going on. But this is one that the world is, is not capable at this point for a lot of reasons, which I don't think we really want to go into in, in this program. But uh, it is going to be a long-lasting, unmanageable affair. But that doesn't preclude us from building a case against those who are committing atrocities. And, and the Syrian Accountability Project, which is the main uh, legal trial package, is doing just that. It's creating a trial package for 
a local, regional, or international prosecutor to someday prosecute neutrally all sides. And that's the point I want to make is that we're not just going after Assad, but we're going after all of the 13 or so warring factions, uh, both pro and con, both for and against Assad, who are just uh, ignoring the laws of armed conflict and committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. So what I've done is I am the only person in history who's ever taken down a head of state uh, and successfully seen him indicted, investigated, indicted, and prosecuted and put in jail. So I've taken all of these principles that I learned in West Africa and have applied them now to uh, building a case against uh, President Assad, his henchmen, and all, and all of the other warring factions. These are tried and true methodologies. And within our, our in the Syrian Accountability Project, what we've done is we uh, were brought on at the very beginning of the conflict by the Syrian National Congress. I was invited to The Hague to advise them on what they should be doing, uh, how do we prosecute, what have you. And this saw the culmination of, or the creation of the Syrian Accountability Project, where we are doing what we did in West Africa. We are building a conflict map, which is a criminal narrative of the conflict. Everything that has taken place there in a narrative form, you could read through the alleged uh, crimes that are taking place there. We've also built the world's largest crime-based matrix uh, of verifiable potential violations of war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, in the world. Uh, we have looked at an incident, and they all have to be verifiable, which means it has to be reported and then verified. Uh, if it's only reported, then we don't, and we can't verify it, then we don't put it in the matrix. But the, the crime-based matrix now is 8,000 pages long uh, of of verifiable, potential, chargeable crimes against the warring parties uh, in, uh, in Syria and the Levant region. Well, of course, a prosecutor can't, would be overwhelmed by that, even sure. though it's, it's very carefully laid out. We have the date, time of the incident, the location of the incident, the potential perpetrators of the incident, and then we have, uh, by paragraph and subparagraph, a listing of the violation of the Rome Statute uh, for the International Criminal Court, uh, what we call international humanitarian law, which is the Geneva Conventions would have that specific violation. And we translated the Syrian criminal code into English, and so now we have the specific violation under Syrian criminal law so that a local prosecutor could take this matrix or a regional or international prosecutor could take this matrix and build a case against all of these warring parties. We've taken it two steps further. The third step is we've created a major incident index, and we've had our criminal analysts go back over and pick out the most egregious of the crimes, uh, the crimes that represent the crime of rape or the crime of pillage or the crime of, of what have you, uh, so that we've narrowed 8,000 pages of potential crimes into a... Uh, 75-page or so uh, matrix where that prosecutor can then focus on those crimes as opposed to going through the 8,000 crimes. And then lastly, we have drafted using the same formats that I used in prosecuting Charles, President Charles Taylor and his henchmen in West Africa. We have indictments, uh, draft indictments, sample indictments for a future prosecutor someday that they might want to consider against all of the heads of the warring factions to include Assad uh, in, in Syria. So this is uh, a work that's been going on now. We're in our seventh year, and we'll be continuing to do that. 
Uh, most of Syrian Accountability Project is made up of students, law students, who I'm mentoring and teaching them how to uh, be war crimes prosecutors. Uh, it's a tremendous experience for them. Uh, and we've just recently uh, issued a white paper. On, we also do white papers on incidents. Uh, we issued a white paper on, uh, on the destruction of Aleppo. Now, the I Am Syria program was something that I started with another uh, Syrian-American friend of mine, in 2012 to allow the people of Syria and the people of the world to connect, to let the people of Syria know that they're not alone, that people do care about them. And our symbol is a green hand. And we encourage people, particularly in Syria, to put the green hand on the wall. And Americans across the country have put the green hand on their T-shirts or symbolically put it on a wall, trying to, in some ways, create a connectivity uh, in the hopes that the Syrian people realize that they're not alone. That program is still very vigorous, but what has it evolved into, and I think this is really interesting to your listeners, is it has become an educational tool. Uh, we have uh, uh, several teachers, uh, high school teachers, uh, who are part of the Syrian Accountability Project who create lesson plans for high school teachers to teach what's going on in Syria. And I'm very proud to, to tell your listeners, over 12,000 teachers around the world have downloaded our lesson plans to teach what's going on. And, we, of course, we update the, those lesson plans uh, monthly to make sure that they're relevant and useful to teachers. And so it's not just a, an awareness program, but also a way by uh, letting high school students understand the tragedy. And then we teach them ways that they can get involved and programs that they can create at their high schools to allow their fellow students and their communities to understand and be in solidarity uh, to the Syrian people. And that, interestingly enough, was, was supposed to be kind of a small program that, like, you know, unintentionally has become a, a major educational tool worldwide on the conflict in Syria. The conflict in Syria, as you've uh, indicated, is, is so complex with so many different factions. And you're trying to approach it through, again, the rule of law and, and legal principles, uh, trying to make order out of chaos. And this is a total nonpartisan statement, but it, it has to gall you sometimes when you hear politicians of whatever party, I don't care, making statements that oversimplify this or dumb it down or, or – you. Uh, the application of catchphrases to to describe something so horrendous and so complex. It is a challenge. Uh, public awareness uh, and the challenge that we have of social media makes our news cycle uh, 25 to 50 words long, constantly changing over the hours. Uh, it used to be when I was in government that we used to have a thing called a 24-hour news cycle, which doesn't exist anymore. We all, all of us seniors had CNN quietly going on in the background, so we would get noticed immediately quicker sometimes than our intelligence agencies about what was happening. Right. Uh, now, uh, uh, through my iPhone that's on my hip as I talk to you, I can get real-time uh, information about an atrocity taking place in some part of the world within five minutes of it actually taking place. That has changed the dynamic. Now, that's not doesn't seem to be think where you would think, well, everybody would be concerned and aware. 
what it has done, it has numbed human beings to the atrocities uh, because, again, it's very human to, uh, when confronted with uh, pictures of, of Aleppo and, and other tragedies, the recent uh, uh, chemical attack, which we also issued a white paper on with the Syrian Accountability Project, uh, you d- it, it causes people to look away easily and quickly because you can. And because of that, we begin to see atrocities and the tragedy around those atrocities taking place begin to slip away from the front page, for lack of a better term, uh, because people aren't actually watching it anymore. So it's, it's more, than, more than just politicians kind of using trite phrases and stuff uh, for whatever political purpose. Yeah, that is an issue. The real issue, the more subtle issue, is the, uh, uh, is the impact of social media on this. It can be a positive, but right now what it is is that it's very easy for, for people just to go on and just uh, uh, l- go on to the next issue, uh, social issue, very, very quickly and very easily as opposed to study and think about and consider the ramifications of what's going on in Syria in our daily lives. I mean, what's going on in Syria uh, is a crime against humanity, and the term crime against humanity is it's crime against all of us, not just the Syrians. It makes humanity cheaper. It diminishes the concept of humanity. So this is a crime against humanity, which means it's an international crime which has to be dealt with. But humanity is turning away. Uh, intentionally and unintentionally, and this causes those of us who are trying to keep this concept, the idea of rule of law, applying it throughout the international community and protecting people around the world, it's a real challenge for us. We do use social media to keep that awareness, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to keep a world focused uh, on it because there's, just so, there's too much information about too much of everything and uh, it's just easier to look away as opposed to stop and think and read the newspaper article or the magazine article uh, and spend a half hour thinking about it. Uh, When you dumb an atrocity down to 25 to 30 characters, uh, it's not working. You mentioned earlier that Syria is going to be a long-term problem and a long-term situation. Not being offensive, but you're getting towards the end of your career. Uh, as as I am. Do you see this as sort of your last project, or do you look forward and say, okay, if I can get this one to this stage, then I can go maybe look at something else? Uh, again, these are these are excellent questions. The answer, the answer is no. I, uh, uh, I had the hum- humble privilege of being asked by the international community to become, to seek justice for people in West Africa. And with that, I developed a unique skill set based on my long-term career at various leadership, management, laws, uh, and, and, and other things, to be able to advise, assist countries, governments, uh, policymakers, and diplomats internationally uh, on these issues. Uh, and so, because I was given that privilege, I, I think it's my duty to continue this work, to uh, to help where I can uh, face down the beast of impunity that, that nibbles on the edges of civilization uh, constantly. Uh, and so uh, uh, I'm not retiring. I'm just changing and molding and shaping my thinking as we move on facing down these, these, these situations. And as long as I can in some way help 
uh, either through uh, direct action at the international uh, policy or diplomatic or legal level, or just uh, be a professor uh, teaching students that the law uh, can change society, or to come back to Ohio University and inspire Ohio University students to, uh, to realize that public service uh, is an important career, uh, then that's also part of what I intend to do for the rest of uh, uh, my days on earth here. David, thank you. We appreciate your time and you sharing a bit of your life with us. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Today, we've been talking with David Crane, an international law and national security expert, about his career and his current work in verifying and building proof of Syrian war crimes. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. Again, that's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.